Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. Our, this show, yes. This what are we? right here. This, yes. Should I carry on, or are you just, every time I open my mouth, are you going to say something? This is fine. In your own time. What have you done this week, Michael? I haven't done anything this week. <laughs> It's been a whole week since we last recorded. It has been it? a whole week. It only feels like three since days. Since we last recorded, yes. <laughs> Lovely listener. Peek behind the curtain because of extenuating circumstances. This episode has been recorded hot on the heels. <laughs> extenuating circumstances. Of the last episode. Not but, a holiday. But you will not notice. <laughs> and by the time it goes up, it'll all be history anyway. Won't True it? that, yeah. So because of that, we ain't done anything. No. <laughs> so, straight to the emails. Chris Franklin's emailed in, first of all. The night you know who went room temperature. I wonder who he's talking about in that particular instance. Someone who couldn't afford a coat. Mm. Hello, usual Leylands and Mrs. Leyland. Hello. I thoroughly enjoyed your episode focusing on sisters doing it for themselves. Having the Mrs. weigh in was an inspired move, and it's always nice to hear her interact with you two. Well, when she's not yelling at us, it is. <laughs> Her interacting with me was what led to you. Oh. <laughs> oh. Come on, funny! Oh. Anyway, spoiler warning. Amazing Spider-Man 2 seems to be getting quite a bit of geek hate, says Chris. And I don't see it. Yes, the villains are kind of meh, but they work within the story. And for me, the story of Peter Parker was always more compelling and central to the strip than the fisticuffs of Spider-Man. Going in, I assumed I'd love the chemistry between Garfield and Stone and dislike the villains. Turns out I was right about the former, and I liked the latter fine enough. With Garfield now getting a Christopher Reeve-like vibe, where as long as he plays the character, I'll go see it, story be damned. I liked Maguire enough in the previous films, but now I see how much we missed the smart-ass-yet-friendly-neighbourhood Spider-Man in those flicks. I felt Gwen's fate catching up to her throughout the film, but I was hoping it was a red herring. To hear the infamous snap on screen was a true gut punch. The aftermath was expertly played by Garfield. I'm really going to miss the charming Miss Stone in these films. Thank you for Michael for pointing out the 121 on Peter's watch. I missed that. I'm wondering myself if there was two edits of Amazing Spider-Man 2 out there. Myself, Cindy, and our son Andrew all thought Gwen died when Spidey's web caught her above the floor. There was even a sickening crack sound sound. It wasn't quite a snap, but close. I was anticipating it, but to actually hearing it and see it was quite disturbing. Now, maybe if we watched this again, we'd see something different, but all three of us thought Gwen died due to Spidey's web and not any impact on the floor. Of course, that would likely have killed her too, which is the classic and very tragic burn of the whole Gwen death anyhow. See, I, I, I remember... It's in the floor as the web, but again... The web catches her because of the, the stretchiness. Essentially, she smacks. Essentially, she died twice. 
So she's like Buffy. Yeah. She got a double... Alright, fair enough. Yeah, again, this we're not really going to be able to say for sure until we see it yeah, again. I reckon they were making sure of it, just so no, there was no debate. Yeah, I, I still don't think it's as awful as everyone's saying it is. And everyone's saying, no, the Raimi films are much better, but the Raimi films had problems. Yeah. Isn't there a scene in one of them where he sees somebody being beaten up in an alley and walks away? Yeah, that's when he's doing his little dances. That's isn't it? not my Peter Parker. Yeah. Was it that dance or was it when he was murdered? Uh, um, I think it was the second one. So it's it not the second one, it was the third, wasn't it? Are you sure? I don't think it's the third one when he's being all moody and mean that he sees somebody being beaten in and out. It's, yeah, it's in the middle of the raindrops keep dancing on your head. Yeah. Montage. And he sees the him and he just one. smiles and keeps going. Yeah, and he just yeah. walks off. And yeah. I'm like, what? So let's not hold up Raimi's films as being perfect representations of visual Spider-Man because they're not. The Spider-Man bits are better. The, no, see, I disagree with you. The Amazing Spider-Man movies are, are better as romantic comedies. The Amazing Spider-Man movies have some Spider-Man in them. Just not very good Spider-Man. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I didn't think either one of them was great, yeah. but the second one's much better than the first one. And this rose-tinted glasses approach we've got to Raimi's movies isn't doing anyone any favours. we all really not like the Raimi movies when they came out? Um, no, I think they were genuinely... I mean, I still like the first one a great deal. Yeah. But I, I, everyone holds up the second one as this perfect superhero movie, and I'm like... No. I really like the second one, because it's, it's the, how they made Peter Parker and Spider-Man was the most faithful to the comics. I mean, I do wonder if me liking Amazing Spider-Man 2... And again, I didn't think it was perfect, but I'd like it as much as I did was, look, he keeps his mask on. Yeah. And look, he, he, he helps people. He <laughs> stops people dying. And look, he's been funny. Which you didn't get any of that in the Raimi movie, because no. we're paying Tobey Maguire, so let's see his face. Let's not see Tobey <laughs> Maguire's rather watch it face, where he smiles and looks like a dolphin. Let's, let's not. <laughs> let's let's not see that. Anyway, Chris Franklin continues. Savage She-Hulk number one. I actually read this to my daughter a few months back. We found a copy at a flea market for a book. I gave it to her, so who knows where it is in her room amongst piles of Barbies, Buzz Lightyears and preschool superhero toys. So much for the collector's item, but that's what comics are for. The story was fun, but yeah, there are plot holes big enough for the Hulk to pass through. Banner just up and leaving like he did screams plot necessity. It's interesting to compare the fairly angry, if still coherent, She-Hulk in this to the wiseacre she would become under creators like John Byrne. Ms. Marvel, this did sound like a bit of a mess. I enjoy much of Jerry Conway's writing, but I think at this point he was cranking stuff out like a copy machine. He'd bounced back and forth between Marvel and DC several times now, and I think Marvel may have had him strapped to his typewriter by gunpoint. Sounds like it shows. Red Sonia, not a big Conan guy, but I've enjoyed your episodes focusing on his issues. I knew of this one mostly for the infamous editing of the bathing scene. I have to agree with Michael. As impractical as it is, I like Sonia's chainmail bikini better than chainmail hockey jersey, as he put it. Also, as much as I admire Windsor Smith's art, I never cared for his women, and when you compare her to Frank Thorne's version, no contest. Yes, I'm a pig. <laughs> yeah, but at least you admit that, Chris. So, <laughs> sexism is perfectly acceptable if, if you acknowledge that you're a sexist. Yeah, that's okay. I can, I'm down with that. Re your Night Gwen Stacy dies episode. This may have been my favourite episode of Hey Kids to date. Your thorough examination of not only the issues themselves, but the impact on Spidey in particular and comics in general were very well thought out and explained. You guys ought to get paid for this. Call Joey Q and have him put you on the payroll or something. 
Well, one, that would be lovely <laughs> to actually get paid for it. But if we were on Marvel's payroll, do you really think they would have let us slag since past off like we did? No. I don't We'd think have to they give would. It high praise. Yeah, I would have had to sit there going, This was a great story! <laughs> Wouldn't I? Yeah. Why, uh, sticking nails through my hand to try and stop myself from saying what I really thought. So, yeah, the money would be nice, but we'd have to sell out our, our honesty. Yeah. Wouldn't we? Just sitting here reading someone else's script. <laughs> Say this! <laughs> no! Sins past, continues Chris. Ye gods, if there was ever a case of comic editors and publishers selling out their characters to so-called hot Hollywood creators, it's this story. Even worse than what Brad Meltzer was allowed to do over at DC. I have long lamented the passing of the editor as steward in comics, saying no to creators who only care to increase their sales and personal profile at the cost of past storylines and future story elements foisted on incoming writers. I don't care what Straczynski wrote before or since, there is no excuse for such a blatant out of character sensational act and age accelerated clones hey J. Michael Mort Weisinger called and even he thinks that's hokey as hell <laughs> sorry that's a sore point with me and I wasn't even reading Spider-Man titles then I'd have thought having Peter's eyeball eaten on panel was as low as they could go but he proved me wrong I'll stop ranting now looking forward to more funny chewed next week. Well, thank you very much, Chris. We enjoyed that. Always enjoyed Chris's emails. Always well thought out. Our next email is from Ivan White, who I think he's new. Nice. New listener. Yes. Quality, not quantity. But you're, you're talking to us, dude. Yeah. <laughs> We're all about the quantity. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, Ivan. I wanted this email to be epic in length and importance, but I haven't been able to get it sorted out to my liking, so I'm writing this hopefully more qualitative email instead. My premise is simple. Did DC lose Superman, or at least his essence, in the past 20 years? It's just these guys' humble opinion, but it seems to me there is no Superman anymore, just different versions of Superboy. I understand that they waged a long battle for copyrights and the like, but I find it hard to believe that they put all that work into setting up these pretenders to the throne if they lost the case, only to simply give up on his 75th anniversary after they won. What logic tells them that Batman and Green Lantern need to be overexposed across all media just in case Superman is gone, or too expensive to keep, then tells them to let the character that has been the backbone of their existence languish on the back burner without direction after they got the keys to the kingdom back? Shouldn't Superman be the be-all and end-all of the DCU? Well, what do you think is the answer to that question? No, I don't think he should be. You know? Because the thing with the DCU is their approach to it is that anyone can be a hero. Whether you're John Hex in in the 1800s or Blue Beetle who's now um, an ethnic minority or whether you're... Is he? Yeah. Since, Since Infinite Crisis. Right, I don't know yeah, or whether you're somewhere in space or all that. The way DC is it is that anyone can be that hero, not just Superman. So you think the universe of the DC universe is the star yeah. of DC comics? And yeah, that all came from Superman. But Superman is the star of what happens. He's not the be-all and end-all, but he was the inspiration for the universe. Alright, fair enough. I think he should be the premier character. In the mm. same way that I think Spider-Man should be Marvel's premier character. And that's not taken away from the fact that the Fantastic Four were first. Yeah. Just like Superman was first. But because he's the granddaddy of them all, I kind of think he should be on the pedestal slightly above everyone else. But at the same time, I think you can't allow for changing tastes 
Yeah. And at the moment, Batman is the face of the company. Whether you like it or not, mm. to constantly deny that is to just bury your head in the sand. Now, some of that is down to the fact that DC have mishandled the character. I'll be brutally honest, I've said this before, I don't think Superman's been any good since the turn of the century. Okay. But I know there are people that disagree with that viewpoint, but for me, I drifted away from the Superman titles around then, and I was going back and reading them when we did Happy Birthday Superman, it was still only really Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness's stuff that was any good, wasn't it? Yeah. And that kept being interrupted by the fact that the titles were still doing that interlocked crossover continuity at that point. It was the inverse of what was going on in the 90s. In the 90s there were four Superman titles, three of which I thought were great, one of which I thought was good. Yeah. But the one I thought was good wasn't bringing the side down. But then by the time we get to the early noughties, I'm, I'm thinking only one title's any good, and the other three are a bit cack. But you can't just buy Superman, yeah. because every month it goes over to the next Adventures of Superman and then Action Comics, and it was they were still doing that cohesive triangle continuity thing yeah and then after Jeff Loeb left I've not there has been no single regular Superman story published in the main books since then that I've read and thought wow that was good there's been a couple I thought oh alright yeah I think that was Action Comics which Action Comics New 52 no I didn't like Grant Morrison's Action Comics run at all some of that may be some of it was good some of it wasn't yeah. It wasn't All-Star Superman, which I think is what I was expecting. Yeah. All-Star Superman is the closest that come that, that DC have come to giving me a great Superman story in that time. But that wasn't in the regular Superman book. Neither was yeah. Superman for all seasons. And it's like some of these special projects have been good. Maybe not Birthright, maybe not Secret Origin. Unchained. Definitely not Unchained. <laughs> But the regular Superman books, I don't think, have been in any way consistently entertaining, or even entertaining, since the turn of the century. Yeah. The World of New Krypton story out was far too long, and there were great stretches of time where Superman wasn't even in action comics. It was um, Monel, wasn't it? Yeah. It was the focus of the book. That wasn't even the lowest that went for me. It was the two Kryptonians, Nightwing and to the one. Flamebird. That I could Did not you not like that at all? No, and see, see, the problem with that is if you're telling this big, long narrative storyline that runs over many comics over many months and it's no good, yeah. you're stuck with it. I didn't mind it because, well, I read it all in the bulk we had. Hmm. I don't know. For me, he shouldn't be the be-all and end-all of the DC Universe simply because they've got so many other great characters. Yeah. But he should be the one who's at the top of the pedestal. He should be the one that is the face of the company. Yeah. If that's what Ivan means by be-all and end-all. But I don't think you should sacrifice Superman's popularity for Batman's. Mm. There's room for both of them. Yeah. And it just seems at the moment that they are more focused on Batman at the expense of everyone else. And it's... it's yeah, I wouldn't go that far. Would you not? Could we've criticised DC and Batman for having five titles, yeah. Yes, for two minutes. They've given other lesser-known characters titles. Remember when Resurrection Man was a thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that they've not given a chance to lesser-known titles and books in the hope that they would sell. Yeah. But when they've not sold, what have they done? They've cancelled it and replaced it with a Batman book. Batman Superman. Yeah. You see? So it's... I don't know, see, I love Batman. I've got no problem with Batman. The the introduced Amethyst Princess of Gemworld. Good. No one saw that coming, and that was a replacement title. I know, but I I think what Ivan's arguing is that Superman 
has been downplayed mm. in recent years, and I think that's been the case since since the early noughties. As a character, though, I would say Superman now like represents something. He stands for something. What but now? Yeah, yeah, now. You think? Yeah. See, at the moment, I don't think he stands for anything. With Morrison's story bringing in that they brought him back to his, his roots of standing for the common man, you know. Oh, right, you mean they took him back more to his golden yeah, age the character himself roots like, of not now. necessarily being for law and order, but for justice yeah, but, and fairness and equality. But then when you think back to when we did the Happy Birthday Superman stuff and he just spends episodes going around, getting fat, marrying aliens on other planets. Yes, that was a little bit so. But that was the Silver Edge. That's what people wanted to see. Yeah, but I, I think... The character itself now is probably as good as he has been since his early days. How the creative teams have handled him and how DC as a company have handled him might not be all that great, but the character itself is just as good. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the character. The character's not broken. Yeah. It just needs somebody to come in with a vision of what to do with him. Mm. Like, Scott Snyder knows exactly what he's doing with Batman. And DC have left him alone to do that. Yeah. Now, the fact that that title sells is probably part of the reason they've left him alone. Yeah. This book is selling, we won't fiddle with it. And I don't know. I don't. I think he should be the face of the company, but not necessarily the be-all and end-all of the DCU. But at the same time, a Superman for whom the, the population in the DC universe is scared of him isn't Superman. Yeah. You know, there the should be at least one character in the DC universe that now doesn't terrify the general populace. Because <laughs> haven't they gone that X-Men route with everybody? They don't yeah. like Wonder Woman because she's a warrior, they're scared of her. They don't trust Superman because he's an alien. Mm. Batman, they don't trust Batman anyway, but he doesn't matter with Batman, does it? Because he's supposed to. Yeah, he's supposed yeah. to instill fear into people. On them cowardly and superstitious lot. Yeah, but there is a thing that maybe children shouldn't be scared of him, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Ivan wraps up. Maybe it's just me longing for the 90s Superman I grew up with or because I've just entered my 30s. But I don't see any current versions of the Man of Steel as anything but juvenile superboys or heaven forbid, Spider-Mans. Maybe the fine print on that legal document said Warner DC can have Superman but not his soul. Thanks for hearing me out, Ivan White. Yeah, well, some good food for thought, though. But Food. Food. <laughs> they were an alien in Doctor Who, were they? I don't know. <laughs> they should have been. Uh, next up, we have an email from Luke Giaconetti. Oh, excellent. We've not heard from Luke for a while. Those 70 shows, part one and two, thankfully, without Aston Kutcher. <laughs> oh, that guy Sam Raimi tried to pass off as Venom. What it is, jab turkeys. Hey, guys, just wanted to give you both a big thumbs up for your series of Those 70s Shows. I came to the comics of the 70s in a circuitous manner, having started reading comics for real in the 1990s, then moving back some by reading back issues from the 80s to reading phone books of stuff from the 60s to finally getting my feet wet in the 70s. There's such a diverse output of books from this decade, you could dedicate a whole podcast to just that. Hi, Emily. So I'm very glad you guys decided to dabble in it in a bit. Yeah, Emily Middleton does Uncovering the Bronze, which is a very good podcast and I'll be brutally honest I'd completely forgotten she covered the Bronze Age exclusively when prepping those 70s shows so to make it up I did drop the trailer in an earlier episode Okay. So, but when I read Luke's emails I don't completely forgot that I'd never mentioned Emily once throughout the 70s shows sorry Emily if you listen I don't assume that you do maybe I know your dad does so your dad can pass on our apologies I, I, I'm sorry about that I didn't it was not a genuine slight it was an accidental slight 
A few comments on the first two instalments, says Luke. Giant Size X-Men. Your coverage of this issue made me think of your coverage of Avengers issue 4, not the greatest issue, taken on its own, but still one of the essential Marvel comics of all time for what it created. I will say that regarding Sunfire and Banshee getting lesser introductions, those characters had previously been featured in X-Men, whereas the others had not. And Thunderbird, being an unlikable jerk, was by design, so that is at least an explanation for said jerkiness. Yeah, but Luke, they were all jerks. <laughs> Not just Thunderbird. I think we said that we Banshee was the only likable one. Yeah, yeah. So there isn't a no plus explanation for the rest of them, <laughs> is there? Maybe it was just a bad day for them. Maybe, yeah, maybe they're just grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. New Gods, one of my favourite titles of the 70s, says Luke. I was so glad when you guys said you were covering this because I suspected that once he got into it, Michael would enjoy this stuff as it has a lot of the heady aspects which he seems to appreciate. More so than any of his other work, I always point to New Gods as the title which got the most direct, unfiltered Jack Kirby ever. The Punisher's first appearance, this one made me laugh. I had no idea that the Punisher was tangentially involved in the Clone Saga. I was never much of a Punisher fan, but my brother was, and still is, really. So I have read many Punisher comics from the 80s and 90s. It's funny to compare this to giant size X-Men. Both the new X-Men and the Punisher became hugely popular, but the X-Men were designed to be popular, whereas Frank Castle took Marvel by surprise when he became a fan favourite. As an aside, I'd really like to hear you guys tackle the original Clone Saga. Almost a complete blind spot for me beyond the brushstroke. Well, it's like we planned this, isn't it? <laughs> Luke, in a couple of weeks, we will be doing the original clone. We've got a couple of weeks of um, doing standalone episodes. Although there is a, a tangential link between Forever Evil and Legends, isn't there? Both so, big crossovers, one from now, one from the 80s when it all started. The one where Darkseid sends glorious Godfrey down to Earth to discredit Earth's heroes. Okay, then. It's good. You'll okay. like it. We're not covering all the tie-ins. Right, okay. We're only doing the six issues. Right, okay. But the Clone Saga is on the docket for doing over summer. Because it is something I've wanted to do, God, since we started, more or less. Mm. And it's just got pushed further and further down. But we are going to do it just in case we finish. We may not finish. But in case we do, we're going to get it out of the way. Jonah Hex. Everyone seems to have a little soft spot for Jonah Hex, and solid oters like this one help explain why. It's sad that DC just announced the end of All-Star Western after 35 issues, including issue zero, but if you combine that run with the pre-Flashpoint run of Jonah Hex, you get more than 100 issues. A fantastic run for a genre book in the 21st century, not named The Walking Dead. Luckily, there are adventures like this one hiding in Showcase Presents and back-issue bins for us to enjoy. Godspeed, Jonah. Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. These oversized magazines often looked quite lovely with the moody black and white art and larger page layouts. Both Deadly Hands and its colour counterpart, Master of Kung Fu, are typical safe bets if you come across them. Steve Englehart and Doug Mench's runs on Master of Kung Fu make for one of the great lost books of the era, living only in back-issue bins due to the Fu Manchu stuff. Another Marvel mag from this period I like is Vampire Tales, which featured some very graphic stories with my boy Morbius, the living vampire, as well as slightly risque tales with Satan. Tana, including her wonderful first appearance in VT number two, about halfway down the page of the link that he sends us, and we almost covered that. Did we? We had that penciled in to be covered, and I changed it out at the last minute because this is my not planning in advance. It's only a two or three page story, it's not a very long story at all, and it's yeah. really good. But I had it penciled in for the month, the week after we did the girls. Right. And when I was going through what should we do right next week, let's plan out next week's show. And um, I realised, oh, this this Satana thing's here. 
Yeah. And we should have done it last week, and we, we'd recorded the episode then, so I junked it. Right. So it didn't seem like the last minute we tacked another girl's storyline, and we should have done it somewhere, because it is only five pages, and it's got brilliant black and white art by John Romita, but it's well worth reading, because it was fun. Can't wait to dig into the next couple of episodes, fellas, Luke. Well, you're very welcome, Luke. Thank you for emailing in. We'll knock it on the head, though, uh, and when we return, it will be part two of... Hush. Prepare yourself for action, romance, and spoilers. It's the Guilty Film Podcast. Join hosts Kevin McKee, Andrew Nitch, and their panel of scoundrels as they review their favorite cinematic guilty pleasures and reward their favorite Hollywood cliches with a prestigious trope award. Find us at guiltyfilm.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Proceeding was a paid advertisement sponsored by Taters. What's Taters? Taters is a delicious meal found in your grocer's produce section. Guiltyfilm.com. Yeah! Are we back? <laughs> and we're back. We haven't done that for ages. We've not. Okay. And he's forward for the Hush Collected Edition. Jeff Loeb states, as he has many times before and since, that comics are a visual medium. And he writes his stories to the strengths of the artist. Visually, Hush is Jim Lee's book, and probably rightly so. It was promoted as Jim Lee on Batman, and that's what the audience is paying for. And let's be fair, that's exactly what we got in the first six issues covered last week. Lee took centre stage, telling a big fan-friendly story with big panels, splash pages and lots of gloss, and he did it very well. If he had a bucket list of Batman characters he wanted to draw, then the first six issues gave him ample opportunity, and he manages to be as polished as Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin in their prime, even if the magic realism of Neil Adams somehow continues to elude him. But if the art was pretty and dynamic, the story was slightly lacking. Jeff Loeb has set up a central mystery, who is the mysterious man in the trench coat with the bandaged face, and offered up few substantial clues to his identity, unless one counts that he stands on rooftops next to large neon signs that spell out the word Robin, or the introduction of a long-time but heretofore unmentioned best friend of Bruce Wayne. Given that, Tommy Elliott, the aforementioned best friend, has just been shot dead by the Joker, our list of suspects is down to none. So can Loeb and Lee pull a rabbit out of the Mad Hatter's hat and make Hush more than just a pretty art book? Should we see? Yes. Batman issue 614 is cover dated June 2003 and is by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. As with last time, the entire series is drawn by those August gentlemen and written by Jeff Loeb. The comic is filled with the Joker's beaten face and battered teeth as a pair of black gloves with bat scallops tighten around his neck. I do love that Batman logo. Yeah. That current logo. It's very similar to the 70s one without actually being the 70s one. Do you like that cover? Uh, yeah, because he drew the Joker right. Or is he didn't in the last issue? He is very inconsistent on his portrayal yeah. of the Joker, isn't he? Sometimes it's spot on, and other times you're looking at it going, "Ew, <laughs> it's just not, just just not the unnatural order of things." Chapter seven: The Joke. The Batman is lost in rage over Tommy's presumed death and beats on his long-time foe, feeling the only thing he should do, what he should have done a long time ago, is end the Joker. As he's been beaten, he protests his innocence as Batman runs through his litany of crimes, finding the strength to kill him, finally and forever. 
Before he can act, Catwoman interferes, preventing him from doing something he will only later regret. He stops her, exploiting her earlier received bullet wound, and takes off after the Joker, running through the many ways he could kill him. Jim Gordon arrives as the Batman tightens his grip on the Joker and appeals to Batman to stop, to not let the Joker ruin one more life. The Batman, realising that it was in an alley like this one that took his childhood, and that he will not let it take his adulthood, withdraws, all the while the Joker continuing to protest his innocence, stating that his gun is loaded with blanks. High above, Trenchcoat Man watches and tosses a coin, scarred on one side. He is innocent, he states, catching the coin. Get the joke? Uh, no. Actually, I didn't. Uh, lots of references to past stories in this issue, with all the touchstones being noted. There are a number of killing joke recreations by Jim Lee that are, quite frankly, ruined by the colouring choices. Going for blood red might have seemed like a good idea, but in execution it just looks like mud. Red mud. Lee's watercolours have been the best thing about some of the art, and it's a shame they've been rendered moot in the final book. The other watercolour shots does a, a magnificent close-up of Batgirl and Batman swinging through the city, and the recreation of Robin's death. I like the... And just the shot of Batgirl looking over her shoulder, yeah, are gorgeous, yeah. aren't they? What are they like in the unwrapped one? The yeah. ones on the first two pages, the, the killing joke ones. The that, red ones. Yeah, they look awful in the actual comic. They're just not red, so... See, they look so much better in Unwrapped, yeah. don't they? Because they've left them black and white. Is it me, or is his watercolours not looking as good in the latter half of this? They get very, in the Unwrapped very, one? They get very rushed. Well, like, as the deadline Yeah, you'll start looming. noticing as well, he's very inconsistent with how he does it. Up till now, it's been... Whenever there's a flashback, it's in watercolour. Yeah. But the further you get in, like, with... The, the Harold flashbacks and the Jason Todd flashbacks in the last two or so issues mm. it's, they're not watercolours at all right okay fair enough um what do you think of a Batman that just punches people uh, I don't like it especially on this issue no I'm, I'm not fond of a Batman who just punches people silly I, this was one of my problems with the Dark Knight yeah where he's alone with the Joker in the um the interrogation room and he just beats the out of it oh the film yeah right and to me, Batman's more cerebral than that. I mean... It's it's kind of what ruined Arkham Origins for me as well. Really? I slagged that game off. It got, yeah. it got decent near the end, though, until the bit with the Joker. But, yeah, it, it isn't so much a strategy game, that one, is it? It's Batman punches people out. Yeah. Whereas the earlier ones, the earlier Arkham games, there was a lot more... Paul Dini wrote the early ones. Yeah, Paul Dini one. didn't write this one. That's why they were better. Yeah, yeah so... I think the proof of that is in the playing of it. I mean, yes, he can get down and dirty with people when he has to, but he takes people out with the minimum of effort and the minimum of damage. He can kill you in 11 different ways from this position. But he doesn't choose to, Yeah, is the point that I'm trying to make. A Batman who resorts to violence and beatings just because he can is little more than a thug. It's why we always like it when he just takes out a criminal in, like, one punch. Yeah, or he wipes his legs from under him and then just knocks him out, yeah, or breaks yeah. a nose yeah. or an arm or whatever. He's there to subdue them as quickly as possible yeah. and not do as much damage. I, I also didn't like why he was just beating up on the Joker in this. Like, the Joker didn't do anything. He just shows up. You know, allegedly shot Tommy Elliot, but there isn't that emotion though to justify but Batman doing that. That's this. my point as well. Yeah. The bat this Batman isn't thinking. Yeah. He's seen the Joker standing over a body with a smoking gun, 
and at no point he stopped and thought about it and gone, wait a minute. Well, it's not even that. It's in the story itself, there is no emotional justification for the Batman to be doing this for either the character or the reader. And no one no one really cares about Tommy Elliot. Apart from you. Well, I, I quite liked him, but even now... But I you just, didn't care what happened to him. Yeah, and Batman just really cares so much about his childhood friend who he's only just met again. <laughs> Death of the family. What the Joker did to Batman, I was all over that when he decided to kill him at the end. Yeah, sure, go for it. Yeah, because Scott Snyder earned it over the course of the story. Because the story, there was that emotional... Yeah investment you had with the characters and what the Joker was doing to them in that but you don't you don't have this in this yeah and especially seen as alright I'll cut him some slack for the first four pages yeah because it's his childhood friend that he's known forever and oh <laughs> the pain the pain but the Joker clearly says I didn't kill him on page five yeah. and the Batman continues to spend the rest of the issue just beating the crap out of him not even the flashbacks made it any better no it's it, it, the Joker would be proud if he'd killed this guy. The yeah. Joker owns his crimes. The fact that he's actually saying to Batman, I did not do this. Yeah. My Batman would take a step back and go, all right, wait a minute. Am I being manipulated here? This isn't Batman as world's greatest detective. This is Batman as, as punch-happy thug. Yeah. And I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Batman, in his internal monologue, manologue, his Batmanologue, <laughs> says that the Joker is the oldest villain he's faced. What about Hugo Strange? Yeah, oh, yeah. I thought Batman and the Mystery Men yeah. was still in continuity. It's been retold by um, Matt Wagner. Yeah. But it's still in continuity as being, at this point, probably isn't in the New 52, mm. but it's still in continuity as being the first Batman story. Hugo Strange doesn't sell as much. That's true. Yeah, All right. <laughs> fair enough. So continuity is something that he adheres to when he wants to. Yeah, yeah. Fair yeah. enough. All right. The graffiti on the wall all over the alleyways, old and Batman those, artists. Those watercolors are actually really nice. Yeah, the watercolors in the minute in the middle representing the um, death of the family. They're actually untouched. Are really good because they're just black and white. Yeah. Why has he drawn Batman in the Tim Burton movie costume on that page? That's the Tim Burton movie Bat. It is, yeah. Isn't it? Rather than the Bat emblem. No, the the one in the movie had the two extra little things, didn't it? Did it? That looks like the Tim Burton one to me. All right, I'll give, I'll give benefit of the doubt. Maybe I was seeing something that's not there. I did like Don Newton getting a, a shout-out. Yeah. Don Newton gets a shout-out, though. Right, so that's what they are. Yeah. In there's Don Newton, there's Kelly Jones. But if you go through it, yeah, every single Batman artist gets um, is graffitied on the wall. You'll see right. Neil Adams somewhere and stuff like that. Because it's really earthy in the black and white one. Can you not read it better in the black and white one? No, well... Neil Adams. The way it looks in the black and white one, I'll show you, it looks like he's just covered the wall in ink. Yeah. Scratched it up with, like, um, correction fluid. Right, Okay. I mean, because I think Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala... Oh, right, it's actually... Yeah, it's really good in the black and white one, isn't it? It looks like genuine graffiti. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I, I think Don Newton and Alfredo Alcala are two of the most underrated artists in Batman history. So it was nice to see them get a nod. Uh, Commissioner Gordon seems to misremember No Man's Land. He says in this comic he didn't let Batman kill the Joker after what he did to Barbara or Sarah Essen. Sarah Essen being his wife who was murdered by the Joker in No Man's Land. After killing Joke, Batman had a jolly good laugh with the Joker, so there was no need for Commissioner <laughs> Gordon to prevent him from killing him, was there? Yeah. Unless you subscribe to Grant Morrison's interpretation of that story, in which case Commissioner Gordon 
didn't prevent him from killing the Joker. Either way, yeah. he's remembering it wrong. And secondly, after after Essen's death in No Man's Land, Batman stands back and says to Commissioner Gordon, do what you've got to do, I won't stop you. Yeah. So if Commissioner Gordon had shot and killed the Joker at that point because of what he did to Sarah, it's Batman who steps back and says, do what you need to do. Yeah. Gordon doesn't stop him from doing it. As I remember, I mean, I've not read No Man's Land recently, but that was my interpretation of that scene, or that's how I recall it. I should have looked it up, really. If I was a professional podcaster. <laughs> I did like how it was Gordon who stopped him, though. Yes. Is he not commissioner at this point? No. He mentioned several times. He's yeah, not. why? I don't know. Was Is it, it because of No Man's Land that he's not that commissioner that anymore? big trial thing where he allegedly shot someone or something? Or am I remembering that wrong? I don't remember. Because the big crossover before this was Bruce Wayne Fugitive. Yeah. And Bruce Wayne wanted up something Did which I've never read. So maybe I'm remembering it right? Possibly. Because I want the two trade paperbacks of that that have just come out that's the whole story. Yeah. But they screwed up the printing of them. Did they? Yeah, Bleeding Cool reported that they'd messed up the issues right. and completely skipped one that was important. Right. Despite it saying in the indicia that it was in the issue. But they so, recalled them all. Yeah, Didio's recalled them all. Fair play to him. Yeah. Fair play in this instance, he's recalled them all, and they're going to reprint it properly, so I don't know if it's out yet. Right. But I know I wanted the new ones, but I was hanging fire till I knew they'd got them fixed. Which is fair enough. Um, as I think you can probably guess, lovely listener, from our discussion, there is absolutely nothing to this issue at all. No. It's pretty art. There's some nice psychological dark drama regarding the nature of Batman and the Joker's relationship, which is enhanced by good use of past history, lovingly rendered by Lee in watercolour, but there's nothing here we haven't read before, or seen before, done better. And having another last page of Trenchcoat Man show up and having him toss a coin, like we're suddenly now adding Two-Face to the list of suspects, a list that now runs to one, is completely lame. I mean, at least he's not quoting Aristotle anymore. Aristotle, Aristotle was a bugger for the bottle. Not until the last issue where even Batman points out. Yeah, where even Batman goes, he's quoting Aristotle. Who do I know who quotes <laughs> Aristotle? And why are they such pretentious assholes? Yeah, I, I also didn't like it how... Do you think Loeb realised he set up a mystery that doesn't exist? And so later on he's like, oh, bugger, I've got three guys in bandages and trench coats. Yeah, I've, I've set up a central mystery here for people to be able to work out who this guy is, but oh dear, I've just eliminated one of only two suspects. But then you get to the end and there's three guys in trench coats and bandages. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know what is it. It's, uh, did he have it all mapped out? And did he just make it up as he went along? I don't know. I guess we'll never know unless there's a... It reads like he made it up. It does, it does read like that, yeah. Batman issue, oh, what did you think of it? I enjoyed it. I didn't like 614 at all. I enjoyed it for what it was, but I, I didn't at the same time for also what it was. I thought it was incredibly weak, that issue, absolutely. I like the character beats with Gordon and Batman. Yeah, the Gordon-Batman relationship, that saves that it. That redeemed it for me, really, yeah. Fair enough. Issue 615, cover dated July 2003, has a cover of Batman and Nightwing running. It's absolutely fascinating in that way that watching people run is the highlight of excitement. Did you not like it? No, it's boring. I like it. It's dull. I like Jim Lee's Nightwing. I like Jim Lee's Nightwing. Show me him doing something cool that is reflected in the comic. Them running across a rooftop is boring. I like that Gotham still has Zeppelins. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> what did they use them for? 
I don't know, but they're cool. <laughs> so, they're cooler than that cover, which is really, really bland. Chapter 8, The Dead. After burying Tommy, the Batman runs through the events of the night he was killed. The Joker, he realises now, clearly didn't kill Tommy, despite the fact that the Joker told him this multiple times in the last issue. World's greatest detective, my ass. Batman has deduced, finally, that he was shown whatever the mystery villain wanted him to see. Before he can muse further, the Riddler sends out another of his silly riddles and Batman and Nightwing take off after him. Nightwing needles Batman about his relationship with Catwoman and says he needs to tell her if it's going to work. The dynamic duo quickly take out the Riddler whose clue was sophomoric and Batman wonders why the Riddler wasn't given a bigger role in the drama being played out by the mystery villain. A closer look at the Riddler's van reveals Ash from the Lazarus Pit. Another clue. Later, Batman comes clean with Catwoman revealing his secret, and Trenchcoat Man does the same with the Joker, removing his bandages to reveal the plastic surgery cured Harvey Dent, aka Two-Face. I do like that in the opening scene at the funeral, Tim Drake mentions that Tommy's never been mentioned before. Yeah. Which was kind of cute. Because it's kind of like Tim's been our voice piece there, isn't it? Yeah. Tim's the one going, why is this guy so important <laughs> and why do we care? I mean, I've got a day off school to come to the funeral, which is great and all. But it's a funeral the guy I don't care yeah, about. Yeah, but it's a funeral the guy I've never met and don't give a rat's ass about. <laughs> yeah. And Dick just brushes it off with, Bruce doesn't talk about his childhood much. Come on, that was a bit, you know. All right, all right. at least he's acknowledging that it's a bit crap. <laughs> Selena is wonderfully snarky at the funeral. Yeah. I loved uh, a line about, please, please, not, oh, Captain, my captain. She pleads when Bruce says he's going to read something. He then proceeds to read, oh, Captain, my captain, by Walt Whitman. He didn't stand on any tables, though. He did not stand on any tables, though. And I love that she followed it up with, please don't let him read at my funeral. <laughs> that genuinely made me laugh. And I, I, there was a part of me that found it very strange that Loeb was playing the funeral yeah. for laughs. I thought that was... I don't know, tonally, was Catwoman just going for gallows humour to get over it, or, or what? I read that Bruce and, and Tommy's uh, Alfred hmm. were the only two people who really cared. Maybe Alfred as well. Yeah, Alfred's not sorry he's gone because he kept calling him Alf. Yeah, but I got that they were the only people who cared. The rest of them were just there for Bruce. And Bruce only cares because the writers told us he cares. Yeah. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't care because we feel that he cares yeah. emotionally. He cares because he's got a man crush on Tommy at this <laughs> present moment in time. Well, he's always thinking about him. He is, during the middle of fights, apparently. Bruce just looked around at his family at Tommy's funeral and realises that he's a very lucky man. So why is he such an ass to them later on? Yeah. He's, he's, not, he's not quite an ass to Dick, to be fair. He's just a bit standoffish. Hmm. More than an ass. He does make a joke, though. Yeah. So that's progress. There are some cool bits you only get in the finished piece, though, rather than the pencil version I'll show you in the cave. Yeah. So if you go on the credits, actually, first, yeah. one of the cool bits is how they work the credits into the scene itself, right? Yes. I like that there's a weeping angel at the funeral. That's probably not intentional. Probably that, not. Uh, okay. Was Doc 2 back on the air you at this point? No, it wasn't. So you, oh, right. get, you get the chapter. Yeah, but the credits aren't the... Well, yeah. aren't all credits now added in post? Yeah, yeah. But then you're, you're looking at it, though, and you, you're realising just how much the colourist is bringing to this. Yeah, like, the pencils in the, the cave scene are quite confusing until you get to the colourist, who makes it all different. Yeah. But you don't get... 
the, the, the computer generated stuff that he's he's doing that minority report thing isn't yeah, it yeah. with computer images just hovering in the air which looks a bunch of faces flying around and that it does seem like it's um, a lot looser pencil wise than it was in the earlier issues it changes like loose and tight like in the last issue depending on what he's drawing the main bit like all of the last issue is really loose and rough until you get to that final pin up page right he yeah. doesn't put as much effort into Nightwing's boots no he, he doesn't he puts he doesn't, into yeah. Batman's maybe he doesn't like Nightwing as much maybe maybe not no maybe he's not as fascinated with uh, Nightwing's boots Jim Lee also in addition to drawing the soles of boots likes to really draw the back curve doesn't he is that, I think that's what this issue was Jim gets to draw the back curve especially the, the double page spread of the cars this isn't one of his best renditions that was all star that was all star Batman yeah, wasn't which it which was what Brian Hitch uh, Jim Lee did the Brian Hitch not Brian Hitch he did the fold out thing yeah it was there was six, six panels it was six, six panels pages. and when doing the ultimates two Brian Hitch saw that and said you know what I'm going to do eight and has anyone ever tried more than that I don't think so no one's ever gone for more than that. All right, fair enough. I mean, he really only draws the garage here, whereas in All-Star, Batman and Robin, he drew all, yeah. the many tiered layers of the cave, didn't he? And it's mainly just all the various Batmobiles from over the years. Clearly visible, there's the version from Batman uh, Forever, the Batman Forever Batmobiles. That's there. from one of the movies, isn't it? Yeah, that's the Batman Forever one. Sorry, right. I'm looking at the wrong one there. Um, the animated series one's there. Yeah. The 60s TV show one's there, which looks more like he's copied it from the Corgi toy than the actual TV show, but maybe that was for copyright reasons. My Batmobile's not there? No, your Bat- your favourite Batmobile's not there. The 1940s... Oh, is that yours, though? No. Although that's the Norm Brafogel one, isn't it? Yeah. From the 80s. I think it's in All-Star. Yeah, the 1940s one's there, and... It's, it's, it's good, it's alright, it's pretty good. Uh, some nice touches when they come out of the Batcave. He doesn't say atomic batteries to power. Or turbines to speed. Or turbines to speed, which is a shame. But the Gotham City 14 miles sign is outside the cave, which is a nice nod to the TV show. There's a sh- oh, sorry, go on. I just love how the, the um, headlights make the shape of a bat. Yeah. <laughs> which is not in any way camping. Because <laughs> Batman is the most believable superhero. <laughs> I mean, it's totally believable he would have headlights that shape a bat. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, Batman is a whimsical how, character. How do you do that? I don't know. Because he's not at all whimsical. <laughs> I mean, unless... Like when he sprays the, the bat, the explodey thing in the shape of a bat. Yeah, when in the game. <laughs> yeah. um, unless Nightwing or Robin's done that and he just doesn't know. Because <laughs> yeah. from your car, you don't actually see your headlights. Yeah. So it's entirely possible Robin and Nightwing have done that and never told Bruce. <laughs> Which appeals to me. Yeah. I, I also like how the, the guys are honking at Batman's driving. Yeah. That is reckless driving, that is. And those guys are complaining. I don't blame them. Yeah. Bloody Batman. Get off the road. How many times do you think he's having his license taken off him? Why would, would he have a license? Batman. In the name Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but he's the most believable superhero. <laughs> There's a Sheldon Park and an Aparo Expressway, named after Sheldon Moldoff and Jim Aparo. And the cutest bit in this, they passed the Denny's on Adams. <laughs> Come on, that was cute. I, I actually didn't notice that. Did you know? Yeah. I thought that was really clever in its subtlety. I probably didn't get it because it was probably in post, was it? Yeah, no, 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 he says it in the dialogue. Oh, does it? Yeah, he says it in the dialogue. We've just passed the Denny's on Adams. All oh, right. Which I thought was really quite cute. I think I've said. Yeah. More than once. 
the Dick-Bruce dynamic in this issue is great. Dick can talk to Bruce like no one else can, not even Alfred wouldn't have this playful way of asking if he and Catwoman were an item. Mm. And Tim probably wouldn't even go there. Yeah. Tim wouldn't be but, bothered. Damn, I wasn't sure what I felt like that. I liked the Nightwings bit, but I thought... Do you remember the end of Night of Owls? When yeah. there was that conversation between Bruce and Dick? That has stayed at the top. I thought the Nightwing bits in this conversation were good, but I'm not so big on the cold Bruce. Um, I got here he was he's not been particularly cold. I mean, com- certainly compared to some of the dickish conversations he had with Dick in the latter half of the 90s. Yeah. This was actually quite a, a warm and friendly Batman. Yeah, well, <laughs> compared he was... To that. He was in his, his narrative, but he wasn't in his dialogue. Yeah. All right, fair enough. It wasn't an awful one and he wasn't being an asshole, which is nice. The Riddler confrontation is par for the course, which is the point of the story that it's just a normal Riddler adventure. It's fun and energetic, but it's not the meat of the issue, which is Nightwing and Batman's discussion about women in general, and Catwoman specifically. Nightwoman encourages Batman to tell Catwoman, as that secret has led to the disintegration of all his relationships in the past, and Bruce playfully tells him it's none of his business. But highlighting the Bruce-Dick relationship, he takes Dick's advice, and he comes clean with Selina. Now, would he have done that without Nightwing telling him to do it? And Selina's just impressed that Nightwing's a fan of hers. Yeah. He's like, alright, Bird Boy likes me, does he? Bird Boy approves. I love that she calls him Bird Boy. Yeah. Bird Boy and Bird Boy Jr. is very funny. Bird Boy and Bat Brain. Yeah, that's very funny. Uh, DC have been down this road before. Selina reformed and knew of Bruce's secret post-crisis. And this was removed when the Joker brainwashed her to turn her back into a criminal and but a few months later retconned out of existence when Batman's backstory was rewritten by the crisis. To be honest, it's the character dynamics and dialogue that make this issue work. The hush mystery is a damp squib. He's not going to be Two-Face, given that he was only introduced as a clue last issue. And if he is Two-Face, that's lame. But from what we've learned in this issue... It was definitely not the Riddler. Definitely not, no. Because <laughs> no. the Riddler wasn't even important enough to be given a slightly different MO, was he? No. So it wasn't the Riddler. Did you like that one? Um, yeah. It was alright. I like I like the Nightwing. I like the fights in it. Yeah, it was, was alright. Yeah. Did the job, didn't it? It's pretty to look at. Although I went to read a Batman story, not a story about girls. <laughs> girls have cooties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Issue 616, cover dated August 2003, has the Batman standing, beaten and bloodied, clutching a sword in a rehash of the classic Neil Adams' Ras Al Ghul issues. At least it's indicative of the content of the comic, but nobody draws that image better than Neil Adams. Sorry. <laughs> you just expecting Batman to be topless. Yeah, and it's one of them, don't even try and mimic Neil Adams' work though. Yeah. Because you're just not going to pull it off. Jim Lee wants to be Neil Adams so badly. I just always think it's cool when Batman has a sword. Do you? Do you like yeah. Batman sword? A sword is specific, he just looks cooler one. Alright, fair enough. The best bit in the Arkham game is when you get to use a sword. Uh, it's one of the best episodes of the TV show, the animated TV show, when they adapt that story. Yeah. And they, they do the sword fight right. in the desert, it's really good. 
Chapter 9, The Assassins. Batman, thinking Ra's al Ghul is behind it all, kidnaps Talia al Ghul so that Ra's will get in touch. Don't know why he couldn't just reach out and phone him, but whatever. Talia is left with Catwoman to babysit as, back at the cave, Batman learns Ra's has already learned of his affrontery and leaves him a message via a sword embedded in his computers. Batman meets up with Ra's in a desert in North Africa. Elsewhere, Harvey Dent tells Jim Gordon that the gun that kills Tommy Elliot is Gordon's old service revolver and that both he and Gordon are being played. But how much longer will they put up with it? Batman and Ra's make a deal. A sword fight. If Batman wins, Ra's will tell all. If Ra's wins, Batman will release Talia and forfeit his own life. As they battle it out, Lady Shiva tracks down Talia, and she and Catwoman get into it, with Shiva taking the prize. Talia, however, cold cocks Shiva. Batman wins his battle, and Ra's tells him he has no idea who he is searching for, but a few months ago, one of his Lazarus pits was defiled. Ra's wants this person as much as Batman does, and it serves his purpose to let Batman find him. Ra's tasks Batman with figuring out just who it is in his life who would wish to come back from the dead. Back in Gotham, Talia returns to save Catwoman's life, and she tells Batman his love for Catwoman will be used against him by whoever it is that is after him. Scene that opens the issue of Batman leaping out of the back plane, sliding down a line to the LexCorp jet, opening the door and taking out the guards before grabbing Talia is an exceptionally good set piece worthy of a James Bond film. Yeah. Great pre-credit sequence. I love his costume in this bit as well. He's not wearing his regular suit. It's like skydiving equipment. Yeah, he's like wearing a skydiver Batman suit. And it's one of those things... he sold an action figure. I'm just going to say, do you think this is because so they could sell an action figure? Probably. No, because I think the actual thing they did do was just a generic Batman. Yeah. I, I do like how his he's equipment on the um, parachute, that's yes. the word. <laughs> I like how his parachute and all the little bits and pieces on it are all in the shape of bats. Yes, because Batman is whimsical, <laughs> as we have established on many occasions. Do you, think, do you think he wants to do that, or is there a merchandising company you make him do it? I think Bruce Wayne has the merchandising rights <laughs> on the Batman. Yeah. And he sells a lot of Batman merchandise to people on Gotham. And that's how he's funding Batman's activities. That, that's what funds Batman Incorporated. Yeah. Batman Incorporated is funded by Batman merchandise because <laughs> the merchandise is where the real money is made. Yeah. Ask George Lucas. <laughs> that's what's enabled him to retire. Uh, with Talia in charge of LexCo and Lex Luthor now president, it did seem like the DC editors of the time were trying to link Superman and Batman closer together in the civilian guises. I wasn't that big a fan of Lex as president, to be honest. It seemed a little on the nose to me in terms of tackling corrupt politician stories. Still, a lot of people did like it, so what do I know? Did you like it? I don't remember much of it. I just remember being president. All right. Did you not read any of that? No. Or did you just read the aftermath in Other Superman Batman? The Batman Superman stuff, yeah. What I don't get with this though is just there's that throwaway line of dialogue where he says, Do you want to do anything about Batman reading your plane? And he just smiles and says, Not God. yet. Yet. So, is that going to play a part later in the story? or? Uh, I don't know if that's tying in with Batman Superman. I mean, later on, the Riddler does. Oh, I've just given away the end. The person <laughs> that we find out is ultimately behind it all, it's not who the is Riddler. not the Riddler, <laughs> says. Uh, you have enemies in very high places. Yeah. So that implies that something has been going on. Although we knew that anyway, really. Yeah, but something is is going on with Luther. Yeah. Specifically. So I, I we think also knew that anyway. Well, I think it's more seeding Batman Superman then. Yeah. Superman Batman, whichever that's that one was called. Loeb did that as well, didn't they? Yes, Loeb wrote that as well. Jim gets to draw another one of his patented Batcave spreads. 
Again, it's not as flashy as earlier on, or the Asbar one. He depicts the cave as multi-leveled. It begs the question, just how big is the Batcave? Very. Big uh, enough. Really? That's as much as you're going? So how is the manor supported, given that there is this huge cavern underneath it? Why does it not just collapse in on itself? Maybe it's super-duper reinforced. You reckon? Yeah. Because it doesn't look like there's a great deal there in the way of supports. I like the Batcave that... You know how they, they've had some of them that are integrated into the cave? Yeah. I like the one where it's just that big kind of multi-layered circle. Uh, yeah. No, I like that one. I like the one that's in the Arkham games. That it is only one level. It's not particularly big. Yeah. It does make more sense to me than having this huge cave. Isn't the one in the Arkham... The first one... No, that's actually on the island itself, never mind. Is it? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. The Jim Gordon Harvey Dent scene is pretty much the only forward progression we've had on the mystery aspect of the series for a good <laughs> few issues. Yeah. And I did love that the sword embedded in the computer that actually ends up being a major clue because he doesn't signpost that one. Yeah. Does he? So I quite liked that. As opposed to the Robin Neon sign. <laughs> that, that was quite a subtle clue that will come into play later. In the unwrapped copy of this that Michael has on this page where he finds the sword, the art has Talia still by Bruce's side, despite the caption saying that Talia has been left elsewhere. Yeah. In the printed copy, this gaff has, has been removed. Yeah, it's so, only in that one panel as well, so... Fair play to the uh, editor then for spotting that. Editor yeah. was doing his job. I, I reckon that was Lee's mistake. Probably. Because he's been known to miss out major details on artwork such as Green Lantern's ring. Yeah, and then redraw... How do you forget Green Lantern's ring? Oh, sure. Isn't that like the thing that gives him his powers? <laughs> yeah. Isn't it like drawing Superman and forgetting to draw the S on his chest? Yeah, <laughs> well, he threw it off, didn't he? <laughs> so it was a minor inconvenience for General Zod. <laughs> it was a minor inconvenience for both parties that he forgot his ass. <laughs> um, the, the scene between Talia and Catwoman, is Talia deliberately rubbing Catwoman's fur when she deduces that Catwoman and Bruce haven't slept together? Maybe. Was Son of the Demon out of continuity at this point? I think it's always been in continuity somewhere. Right, okay, see, I always liked it. But even if this was, I think Denny O'Neill was implying Batman and Talia were lovers in the O'Neill Adams stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. Surely that was subtext, given that Batman was her love god Batman at that point. Well, she, she does always call him lover. Yeah. So, to the problem with picking and choosing your stories... Yeah. If Talia and Batman had a physical relationship, this scene takes on a completely different subtext yeah. than if they didn't. Yeah. Because basically this is the new girlfriend and the old girlfriend. Mm. Which is never comfortable for, for characters <laughs> in stories, is it? As as the doctor found out yeah. when Rose met Sarah Jane. And it's the, the similar dynamic. But it does there's a there's an extra level of frish onto it if Talia and Batman were lovers. That's just my opinion. Where the hell did all Raz's men come from? In the desert. Do they just pop out of the? They do just pop out of the sand. They're, don't all, they? they're all ninjas. How do they breathe under sand? They have learned. Batman trained them, didn't they? Oh, oh no, no! Fair play. They've got her tanks on. So they have. Yeah. So yes, if Son of the Demon is still in continuity, Batman trained all these people. Yeah. So Batman <laughs> has trained a bunch of desert ninjas 
who have ultimately come to use the things he's trained them against him. Wow, political commentary <laughs> in a Batman comic. The time frame in this issue makes no sense. At oh, all. yeah, because the planets and all these events are going on at the same time. Yeah. Braz is in North Africa, right? Which is six hour time difference between New York. Let's assume that Gotham is New York well, the, for the purposes of New this. York's metropolis. I thought, well, Chicago, then, is it? Yeah. Let's assume a six-hour time difference for the sake of argument. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I suppose it could be nighttime in both at the same time. Yeah. Just about. Yeah. But there's it a full moon. Morning. Yeah. There's a full moon Yeah. in both locations at the same time. Maybe the Gotham's on a power outage. Or <laughs> it wouldn't affect the moon, dude. <laughs> The moon doesn't run on batteries. Unless it's like that city in Invincible that's <laughs> always in that night. Yeah, alright, fair enough. I mean, it does also imply that Batman gets to Africa from Gotham and back in the space of a night. He has his super-duper flying bat jet. He does have his super-duper Concord bat jet. Speeds of a Quinjet. Alright, fair enough. On the one hand, this is a rehash of an earlier and much better story. The O'Neill Adams Batman issue 244 is a classic, and revisiting it here doesn't really mean anything without that prior knowledge. That being said, it's certainly plausible Rose would want a rematch, mm. because he's, he's quite competitive. I do get the feeling, though, once again, this exists because Jim Lee wanted to draw it. Yeah. Jim Lee's gone, oh, remember that one where Batman and Raz fought in the desert with swords? Can I draw that? Because Jim Lee sounds like a drunken northerner in a pub. <laughs> what are you trying to say, dude? Uh, the Catwoman Talia confrontation is far more meaty and interesting. Talia obviously still loves Bruce, but he's willing to save Catwoman because Bruce loves her. I think I would have liked to have seen more battling between those two. More yeah. bitchy, snidey, catty comments between the two of them. It's not a bad issue. What I found funny was that this this Talia is willing to save the person who, who Batman loves. Whereas in, say, Batman Incorporated, she destroys half of Gotham and kills the child because <laughs> Batman doesn't love her. It's a different Talia. <laughs> different times. New 52. That kind of thing. Five-year timeline. Five-year timeline, yeah. The Harvey Dent-Gordon confrontation pays lip service to the ongoing mystery. Something that we've kind of forgotten about for a few issues. <laughs> whilst Jim Lee drew the Joker and Harley Quinn. And now Harvey is claiming he's being manipulated, just as Batman thinks Croc, Ivy and the Riddler were. Raz asks who Batman knows who would want to come back from the dead. Another big clue to Hushy's ID, but not quite as large as a literal neon sign. In fact, they are so both obviously red herrings, but that doesn't help us work out who Hush really is, if we are indeed supposed to be treating this as a mystery. Mm. Which at this point... I don't think we are. It's a big blockbuster. Yeah. In Unwrapped, there is an interlude at this point simply entitled The Cave. Alfred and Catwoman talk about how good she's being for Batman, who's having his wound tended to by Alfred in the Batcave. It's only three or four pages. Yeah. I have no idea where it originally saw print. Not having it doesn't affect the story at all. No. But it does add a nice little layer to the Alfred... Catwoman relationship where yeah. he openly comes out and says actually Miss Kyle I'm really rather fond of you mm. and she's like oh thanks Alfred yeah I think it might have been for the hardback or something you think yeah. it's, it's 
Not in here, and in the indicia of your unwrapped, it doesn't say where it's from. No. So, that's a little bit confusing. Issue 617, cover dated September 2003, has Batman kneeling down over a freshly dug grave. The grave has been dug by the Batman, we know this, as he has a shovel in his hand, and he looks as grave as what he's just dug up. He's a bit stubbly, and it being a dramatic graveyard shot, it is, of course, at night, and it's raining, and it's lightning. It's one of the very few covers that, in addition to being a poster piece, is intriguing in its own right. Why is Batman here? Whose grave is it? How big are his thighs? All these questions and more will hopefully be revealed within. Well, maybe not the thighs thing. I want to know what the pose is all about. Ah! He says as he pauses like that. Yeah, because there's no clue though, is there? Because it just says he lies. But you can't actually make the name of the person who's scraped. that you know. weeping angel behind him, not the same one. You took Tommy Rory and Amy. Or at Tommy Elliott's funeral. Oh, yeah, right, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sure, if I want to go down that route, <laughs> yeah. that weeping angel took Rory and Amy, and now it's after Batman because he's not looking at it. Uh, yeah. So that could not end well for him. That could be how you explain Batman time travelling. Return of Bruce Wayne yeah, because, because of the weeping <laughs> angels yeah, the fundamental interconnectedness of all things chapter 10 The Grave Batman and Robin fake a dust up so Batman can follow Catwoman and see if she's on the level she gets into a fight with a deranged huntress Batman figures out that the Huntress is under the thrall of the Scarecrow and interrupts the fight before either woman can be hurt, but Robin is taken out by Trenchcoat Man, who calls him a pretender. Scarecrow lures Batman to a cemetery where Jason Todd, the former Robin murdered by the Joker, is buried. Above the desecrated grave, Trenchcoat Man himself stands holding Robin by the neck, taunting Batman for not yet figuring it out. He removes the bandages and stands revealed as Jason Todd. You see that coming? <laughs> no, actually, we did see yeah. that coming. <laughs> Apparently, it's now been a few months that this story has taken place over. Yeah, but they said that in the last issue, didn't they? Yeah, it doesn't feel like a few months because the no, Joker right. Harley Quinn bit took place over one night. And what, what's he been doing? Well, yeah, what's he been doing for a couple of? He's obviously at this point been getting carnal with Catwoman. Right. So they've done the John and Yoko thing, and they've just spent <laughs> a couple of weeks doing everything from the bed. Right, oh, yeah, okay. okay That's my thing. Now they're over that part of the relationship. Right. They've moved on to going, oh, yeah, I suppose we really should find out who this bandaged <laughs> guy is who keeps following us. It's my thinking, anyway, and I'm, uh, I'm sticking to it. It's a nice, subtle touch that above Catwoman's head on the splash page, I think it's the splash page, yes, you can see Jason, uh, Jason Tim, oh, yeah. sneaking through the cave. Yeah. thought that was a nice little touch. It says, of course, Robin 3.0 which is Timothy Drake. Batman is so paranoid, he thinks that Catwoman is a plant, and her relationship with him is all part of the master plan of the mystery guest yeah. that has concocted this. He really is paranoid, isn't he? Yeah, well, when he you know, gives his trust to someone, they turn around working for a big... Uh, a big secret organisation who then destroy his brain and send him travelling through time. <laughs> that, that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, one of the first times that the mystery has uh, yielded a decent clue. Placing of the sword in the cave by Ra's last issue wasn't random. Yeah. This is really good mm. because throughout the latter half of the story now, that sword is actually quite important. Yet at no point does Jeff Love signify it as such. Even in the big info dump in the last issue, 
it's mentioned in passing and you go ah right that's oh yeah the sword the kit ah very clever I liked that that was really good I found it interesting in the opening scene that Nightwing is supportive of Batman and Catwoman but Robin isn't which could be a subtle nod to Nightwing being older whilst Robin is still about 14 but I recall Robin being a lot more savvy about in regards to the opposite sex in the uh, 1990s series. But ultimately, this all turns out to be a cunning ruse anyway. It does. Doesn't it? An elaborate ruse. An elaborate ruse. Yeah. Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Robin and Catwoman's fight reminded me very much of the 60s TV show, where Catwoman, Julie Newmar version, entices Batman with a partnership, and when asked about Robin, she says, well, we'll have to kill him. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. I like that. I thought it was good. I did... I was reading this the first time I read it, and I've read it a couple of times to do the show, and thinking it felt quite out of character for Robin and even Batman to a large extent. So having this all be a elaborate ruse, as you put it, was quite satisfying. Fair play to Jeff Loeb on this. He sucker punched me on this one. Yeah. I did originally think this was this was him using Batman as a, as a, a bit of an ass to his advantage to tell the story. Yeah. I thought that was clever. Very good. Catwoman versus Huntress is here purely because that's apparently what we as readers want to see. Two women fighting. It's a decent fight. Psychologically, it's interesting in what he's saying about Batman more than Catwoman and Huntress. He doesn't trust Selina, despite revealing his ID to her, and that he needs to know if she can be trusted. But the two-page poster shot of Huntress and Catwoman looks very awkward. Yeah. Anatomy-wise, doesn't it? They've both got that turning at stupid (laughs) angles thing going on so we can see boobs and ass at the set. although we don't see any ass no just looks uncomfortable well the fight probably is yeah alright fair enough I did however love the next page yeah. where the Huntress and Catwoman fight much smaller panels this time and Lee essentially just repeats the panels but replaces the Huntress with the Huntress so from Huntress's point of view she's having a battle with herself I like how it's the other Huntress is the old costume. Yeah, he's in a different costume. It's very Superman 3. Yeah. The war that's going on within herself. Only Huntress doesn't have a beard. Only Huntress doesn't. Superman doesn't have a beard, does he? He gets bearded when he gets a bit of stubble, I suppose. I suppose we can argue it's cheating to repeat panels like this, but this was actually an excellent use of that technique. Yeah. It works narratively to do what he's done here. It's all right. Scarecrow, crossing another character off the bucket list, is singing Hush Little Baby. Yeah. Cute. Yeah. Very cute. I like how he's um, going for the Tim Sale look. Yes, that is a very Tim Sale inspired Scarecrow, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I like. Halloween with Jeff Loeb. Yeah. And I like that version of the Scarecrow. So yeah. that worked for me. Trench Cutman cold cocks Robin and calls him a pretender. Trench mm. mm. Man is revealed at the end of this issue as Jason Todd. Not Riddler. Not the Riddler, no. In no way whatsoever. <laughs> World's greatest detective, he says to Batman. You still haven't figured it out. So, let's review, shall we? Should, should we do it? <laughs> <laughs> Batman's line was cut, and then the Batmobile had its tyres shot out. Oh, you're not doing the background. No, sure. I thought it was quite good. <laughs> there wasn't really any clues here as to Trenchcoat Man's death, unless we're counting the tyre being the one defining moment of Jason Todd's life. I'd argue, though, that's not really a clue, as it requires Batman even remembering that. Although, yeah. I suppose, he has a didactic memory, doesn't he? So maybe he would. Yeah, we can go back and reread that comic, ad nauseum, but Batman can't. 
Yeah. But again, didactic memory, whatever. Anyway, a shadowy figure shows up with bandages over his face and quotes philosophy normally from a distance. I don't recall if Jason Todd had a fondness for quoting Aristotle. I never got that Jason was particularly academic or even that bright. He wasn't as intelligent as Tim or Dick, was he? No. In the stories, certainly post-crisis, anyway. Even Batman admits that. Yeah, even Batman admits he was an obnoxious little tyke at times. Uh, Listing the names of great philosophers probably wouldn't be high on his list of hobbies. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought, so, alright. He does like standing on rooftop. Either way, this isn't a clue, because Batman never heard him talk. Mm. This is the first time he's actually come face-to-face with him, I think. He likes standing on rooftops with neon signs that spell out Robin which is spelling it out for us, but not really for Batman. Yeah. Because Batman didn't see him. He's manipulated a number of Bat-villains into helping, or paid a number to do so, and has also vandalised and utilised a Lazarus Pit, so it's someone with access to the rogues who knows about the Lazarus Pit. The access to the villains is possibly a clue, but Jason never met Raz, Mm. as far as I can remember. He probably knew about him, though, so we don't know for a fact and deduction is elimination of facts yeah. he was in Batman 400 but that's not post-crisis right. that's pre-crisis I don't think post-crisis Jason ever encountered Rat, but maybe Batman makes him study up yeah. on the villa so alright we'll give him that one the fight with Scarecrow led them to where Jason Todd is buried this is a pretty big clue but it's revealed only two pages before we learn the identity of the bad guy Unless we haven't. Mm. And this is all an elaborate ruse. I like how his costume has a big R on it. Yes. And then the Hush. Yeah. The Hush costume is exactly the same, but with a big H on it. Um... I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I, the costume's alright, but Jim, Re- Jim Lee never really moved out of the 90s in terms of costume design, did he? No. Long trench coat, check. Um, lots of pouches. Lots of pouches. Check. Slicked her. Check. It's. I, I like that he's got a distinguished touch of grey and a polo neck shirt, but it looks like he'd, he'd just be right at home hanging out with Gambit. Don't you get that? Jubilee. Do you get the white hoe from the Lazarus pit? But because Ras has, has got that as well, has yeah. he? Ras grey. But, but the Lazarus pit causes premature greyage. I just asked Reed Richards. Do you think Reed Richards uses the last... It would explain why he's so young-looking, um, yeah. despite his age. Uh, added all this up, I'm not really getting how Batman could have worked this out. <laughs> the sword being embedded somewhere specific is a huge clue, but as yet, we're not privy to that. Yeah. We've just seen Batman go, ah, perhaps this is a clue. A clue, a clue, a clue. Gesundheit. Unless there's a huge rabbit to be pulled out of the bag yet which is possible. But if the sword is a big clue, it's going to be a bit of a cheat to tell us about it after the fact. Yeah. If this is indeed what it purports to be. Which, you know, I'm not entirely convinced of, but I've read the other two issues. So, In, in, in and of itself, this issue was not quite as exciting as it could be, given it was the big reveal. It was alright, it's fast-paced, it's pretty, Loeb does a good job of showing the depths of Batman's paranoia. It's not a particularly satisfying twist, though. No. New readers are left with a big, so what? And old- big, older readers are just going, what? Yeah. Just wondering how the hell this works. Because let's be honest, this is... Uh, no, we'll talk about that later. What did you think of the big reveal? Uh, yeah, I wasn't all that fond of that issue. Do you remember what we thought of it when we read it originally? Because I didn't. I don't remember thinking much of it. Right. We're reading Long Halloween, which is Jeff Loeb doing... Jeff Loeb at his best. Yeah. You're reading that, and there is that payoff. There is that big emotional payoff you get from finding out who done it. 
You just don't cover this? No, because th- this isn't this is about Jim Lee drawing Batman. It's Jim Lee's book, this yeah, year. It's not about the mystery in and of itself. Issue 618, cover dated October 2003, is multi-layered at the front. The Batman poses dramatically, cape billowing in the wind, his thighs still huge. Further back, a skeleton in a robin costume, and behind that, a pair of stern-looking eyes. It's alright, isn't it? Yeah. It's okay, I suppose. Get wrong with it. Chapter 11, The Game. The man who would be Jason says that Batman must reach him across the expanse of cemetery before he slits Robin's throat and starts to cut. Catwoman intervenes and it's on. The Batman and his new foe get into it, trading harsh blows and harsher words. Jason is all, how could you let me die? As he pounds the Batman into muesli. The Batman is all, this is no game. As he smashes Jason into silly putty. Catwoman wants to intervene, but Robin says that Batman must handle this one alone. Catwoman asks Robin what Batman would be like if that's not Jason Todd. They both rush after the combatants as the fight spills out into Gotham. As they continue to battle, Jason spells it all out for the Batman. The bat line was cut with a batarang, a substantial clue one would have thought we'd have been clued into earlier. The crash over Crime Alley was no mistake, as that's where he found Jason, which is the first thing he'd think of when referred to Crime Alley. And the tyre was the one Jason was stealing. Told you, we got that one. Yeah. Pegged that one, didn't we? But the Batman has figured more out as well from just by being up close and personal. This isn't Jason. He never calls himself Jason, never refers to Batman as Bruce, but these movements are a direct clone of Nightwing, and that's not how Jason fought. The mystery villain is using this poor deluded creature for his own ends, as he did with Croc, Ivy, Harley, and the others. But the biggest clue? Clay, on the floor around Jason's boots. This is... Clayface. As the expositional beating concludes, Jason melts away, leaving only his trench coat. Batman tells Robin to get his wound checked out at the cave and then analyse the coat for further clues. Batman then confers with Oracle, asking her to find Huntress. Whilst they chit-chat, Oracle asks Bruce why he thought of Tommy Elliot when he needed a surgeon. Intrigued, Batman asks why. Oracle says her investigation of the hidden relay Batman found underneath the sword Ra's left was a listening tool made by... Harold? Lovely mute hunchback Harold, who was a really nice guy, lived in the cave for a bit, taking care of all Batman's computers and vehicles. That Harold? The Harold who has never even been mentioned in any chapter of this story? That Harold? Yes, that Harold. <laughs> Batman confronts him and he says he betrayed Batman for the promise of being able to speak and not being hunchbacked anymore. A chance to be happy. Harold made sure the relay was just that and couldn't hurt. And the man already knew Batman's ID, so Harold didn't betray a trust. Batman says he can forgive if Harold says who the man was, but before he can talk any more, Harold takes two bullets, one through the heart and one through the head. Batman turns to find Trenchcoat Man aiming at him. Just for good measure, he quotes Aristotle again. Batman beats him to a bloody pulp for his pretentiousness. Actually, that last bit doesn't happen yet, but God, we wish that it happened did. yet. Yeah. Go- Gwen Stacy is apparently buried in Gotham. Okay. I like. I don't know why she should be buried in Gotham. Why not? Unless it's really New York. Well, apparently this graveyard is super secret, which does. Batman mentioned several times. No one knows about this graveyard. Only Jason is buried here. No one knows about this secret graveyard. What are all the other graves for? <laughs> does he not? No. Does he not mention that Jason being buried there is a secret? 
which doesn't jibe with the death in the family because well, I'm pretty sure they were all at Jason's funeral. No, because he, he, there is a lot of dialogue saying, no one's supposed to know about this place. What? It's a graveyard. <laughs> no one is supposed to know about graveyards <laughs> yeah. because in Batman's world, everybody's buried at the manor. Yeah. Apart yeah. from Jason. <laughs> no, because no one likes Jason. Yeah, no one likes Jason. <laughs> so Jason doesn't get buried with his parents <laughs> yeah. at the manor. <laughs> no wonder he's in a bad mood. <laughs> you didn't bury me with mum and dad. No, no, I didn't because they're not your mum and dad. Uh, I liked Catwoman saving Robin. I thought that was cool. All you know, Robin being here raises the child endangerment issue again, but we just ignore that because it's part of Batman's shtick. Interesting character bit. Batman thought about resurrecting Jason with the Lazarus Pit. Yeah. I thought that was quite good. John Byrne would utilise the Lazarus Pit to great effect in his Generations miniseries where Batman would become immortal yeah. from using the Lazarus Pit. Because they do that fight where they go into the Lazarus Pit and fight each other yeah. and only Batman comes and out. And only Batman comes out of it yeah. and it drives Raz insane. It was good. I was, in, I was really confused by Batman's line that Jason, had he lived, would be the same age as Nightwing. Mm. how did that work then wasn't Jason at least five years younger than Dick Grayson because yeah. surely there'd be no point in adopting someone who was legally of age which Jason would have been if he was the same age as Dick when Batman met him which he clearly wasn't yeah. when he was boosting tires off the Batmobile so that line didn't make any sense to me did you? Did, did, am I missing something? did you get anything I, from I just that? I didn't think that much about it I just thought it was silly to be honest um if he was the same age as Dick, Jason seems to be suffering from premature greyness. But that could be the Lazarus pit, like yeah. we mentioned. But also, I suspect it's to differentiate between the two of them, because Jim Lee draws Jason to look exactly like Dick. Yeah. They could be twins, couldn't they? Which is on purpose, really. You think? Well, yeah. Because if if he's mimicking Nightwing more yeah. than Jason? All right. Fair Which enough, I actually really liked. Well, they don't have anything, as they point out in the story, they don't have anything to base Jason's movements on. It's just a bluff, really, yeah? Yeah. And they're hoping that Bruce will be so on the back foot yeah. from being confronted by Jason Todd that he won't notice stuff like that. But in every other issue apart from the Joker one, he's quite smart. Yes. <laughs> the flashback setting up to the answer to the mystery cheat ever so slightly. We as readers never saw that it was a batarang that cut the line Batman was swinging on and neither did Batman. Yeah. We saw Mr. Mystery Man cutting a picture out of the paper later on with a batarang. So whether we were supposed to put two and two together, though, yeah. but that's not what he mentions here. He mentions the line was cut with the batarang. That was a clue that you should have spotted. Yeah. But Batman didn't spot it. And neither did we. And neither did we, because we were never shown it. It's a bit woolly, that one. I'm willing to give them the alright, okay. But yeah. I do think if that is a significant clue... As it's presented here... It should. At the very least, we as the audience should have seen it was a batarang cutting the line. Yeah. Even if Batman didn't. We pointed out that it was very convenient that Batman ended up in Crime Alley, but we see now that that was by design. And we also spotted the tyre being blown out was the one that Jason was stealing, mainly because, mainly because sorry, that has become one of Jason's defining character traits, which we banged on about last week. I did like Batman figuring out, though, that Jason wasn't Jason. Mm. which was really quite clever and Lee follows it up with a lovely watercolour a lovely watercolour shot of Batman and Robin yeah that's gorgeous isn't it really nice piece of work that really do like it I did like that Loeb unlike so many other things in this story doesn't signpost the sword being relevant we saw Batman make the connection that Raz or his men had left the sword purposefully and here we see Oracle tell him 
why it was left where it was, but we're left to figure out what Oracle's referring to and make that connection. Yeah. She doesn't have a line of dialogue saying, well, you know that that sword that you found in the cave that Ra's left there in your computer Mr. that was positioned there deliberately, Mr. Lister, sir, you've got to go, all right, clever. Yeah. That was a good piece of writing, and I liked that. By contrast, Harold? Yeah. <laughs> what? See, I knew who Harold was... So I was giving them a little bit of credit because I actually liked how they handled Harold. I liked and Harold. I, I liked his motive for doing what he did, and I liked he in this. Yeah, right. And I still liked how Batman treated him after what he did. Yes. But even then, I knew who Harold was. If you're only reading this story, is it's meant to be read as a single story? Exact Amon. It's it's obvious here that this has been set up to think this was Jason Todd from the beginning. Yeah. Spelling it out in neon, literally, crime alley, the car tire, the bat line, blah, blah, blah. Some of these clues work better than others, as we've mentioned. However, a mystery has to play fair with the reader. And whilst the big bad has yet to stand revealed, let's be honest, the only person remaining now is Tommy Elliot. Yeah. And given that the big mystery revolved around a guy we thought was dead... It's now not beyond the realms of possibility Loeb's going to play that card again. Hmm. Clue, he does. <laughs> the fact that this was Harold came completely out of left field, didn't it? Yeah. It's, Harold was a pretty decent character in the 90s. He was created by Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle and was a fun... He was in Nightfall, wasn't he? He was in Nightfall. He I liked him. Yeah, he made the bat train. And then he left when Azriel was around and then he came back later, I think. But he's not been seen in ages. No. He's not been seen in Batman comics in ages. What, At least what did happen to him? Nothing. So he just disappeared. He just kind of disappeared. Right. And I don't he, he got lost in the train tracks. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember if he came back after that. You know, if this was an older comic, I think we mentioned this last week, that having him be a player in the stories would have helped. But Ed, like you just said, anyone picking this up blind simply because it's Jim Lee or picking it up because it's one of the greatest Batman stories ever told, yeah. this reveal is just lame. It's the lamest reveal since Bob killed Laura Palmer. Where did that come <laughs> from? It makes very little sense. Now, well, I, there's no setup from the start. All right, I'll give you that. I, I was just being pissy. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, I normally like Jeff Loeb's work, but he manages to tug at the heartstrings and make the reader sympathetic to his characters. But this was lazy. If this was a novel... Yeah. Like a James Bond novel or a novel with a continuing character written by different writers over many, many years. You couldn't bring a character back from an earlier book written by a different author, a character that has no bearing on the story being told in this novel, and say, ha ha, it was him. Yeah. That's cheating. And it's lazy. And it. No. There's a left field twist ending. It has to make sense within the story that's been told. It also expects an awful lot from its readers. Yes. It requires... It requires us knowing who Harold is. Yeah. And it also works as the third of the the Long Halloween trilogy. Because you do reference it several times in this. What, Long Halloween? Yeah. Do they? Yeah. What? Jim... No, Two-Face. Harvey Dent mentioned several times about what happens during it. Right. Oh, yeah. Yes, he does. Yeah, I forgot. So about I kind of read it as the third of that trilogy, but even then, Harold's not in any of the other ones. No, well, that's what I mean. Harold's not. If Harold had been puttering around in the cave, yeah, in the earlier issues, 
and then just disappeared. And what if he's in the cave and he trips over something and says, ouch, and Batman says, Harold, did you just say something? And he carries on puttering around yeah. and saying a word. And so there's a clue. Yeah. Yeah, but this didn't work. Didn't work at all. Batman issue 619, covered dated November 2003, had two gatefold covers. The first one, the one we have, is of the rogues gallery all hanging around looking menacing as Batman is held by the cape and slumped on the floor by Hush in front of the grave of Tommy Elliot, Jason and Batman himself. Quite good, isn't it? Yeah. In that layout kind of way. The Joker looks a bit cack. I kind of like the Joker. But, but even the tongue? Maybe not. That's Venom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other cover is a hero shot of the various Bat family. They're both pretty good. Yeah. They both do the job, don't they? Nice gatefold cover. Wouldn't the um, like anniversary or celebratory type covers? Yes. Was there something behind them? I don't know. Was it just celebrating the end of this story? I don't. There's nothing special about issue 619 on November 2003, is there? I'm not sure. I don't think there is. I could be wrong. Chapter 12: The End. Batman quickly tires of Hush's propensity for quoting Aristotle and starts piecing it all together. The fact that Hush is stupid enough to wear Tommy's mother's pendant is also a large clue. As they fight and fight and bite and fight, Batman says Thomas Wayne did everything he could to save Tommy's father, but Tommy says it's that Dr. Wayne saved his mother that irked him. See, Tommy wanted his mum and dad dead so that he could have the family fortune, but due to Dr. Wayne's competence, he had to sit and wait for his mother to succumb to t- cancer before he inherited the many millions that were so rightly his. To ease the blow, he became a magnificent surgeon that surely netted him his own significant chunk of change, so needing the Elliot fortune actually makes very little sense. What also makes very little sense is why he's gone to all this trouble in the first place. Mummy's dead. He has the money, plus all of his own money, from being a successful surgeon. None of these motivations add up. Anyway, Jim Gordon shows up with Harvey who has double-crossed Tommy. Oh, the irony. See, now Harvey is fixed by Surgeon Tommy, just like Harold was. He's reverted to being a good guy. Harvey shoots Tommy to save Batman and he reveals to Gordon the last time he shot Hush, it was Clayface in disguise. Batman leaps into the river to save Tommy, but the body is gone, presumably washed downstream. If there's no body, he ain't dead. Huntress and Catwoman make up and Batman calls Superman it. He tells Superman that Tommy orchestrated the whole thing by actually helping people and Harold had planted a program in the cave's computer system to subliminally flash an image of Tommy every time Batman used it so Batman would call him when he was in trouble. Superman locates a homing beacon at the base of Batman's skull planted there by Tommy and burns it. The end? No, apparently the Riddler masterminded this whole thing for Tommy Elliot. The Riddler. Apparently, old Eddie Nigma had cancer and he used a Lazarus pit to cheat death. Raz was apparently the only one not in on the game. In conjunction with Tommy, Riddler cooked up this whole thing when Riddler learned Tommy didn't want to cure Mommy Dearest, he had a mad on for Bruce Wayne. Much convoluted plotting later, here we are. Batman tells Riddler him knowing he is Batman is useless. He'll never tell anyone, as a riddle everyone knows the answer to is worthless. Besides, Raz is still looking for who it was that desecrated his Lazarus pit. Jason's body, however, is still missing, and Riddler refuses to give that up. Batman punches him in the face, dirty turkey. Later, Catwoman and Batman split up due to Batman's trust issues. The end. (laughs) Oh, oh, dearie, dearie, dearie me. So, 
Hush's dialogue so far has consisted of quoting Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Bored now? Uh... In the last panel on page four, Hush brandishing a firearm in each hand is firing on Batman at point-blank range. Over the course of the story, and indeed on this very page, we are told that Hush is a magnificent marksman. How the hell, then, does he diss Batman at point-blank range? Because you can't shoot Batman. Apparently not. No. Lovely close-up of the sole of Batman's boot. (laughs) Worth pointing out, we come back to where we begin, don't yeah, we, yeah. in this particular storyline. And am I the only one to think that Tommy's motivations are really crap? Yeah. <laughs> he tried to kill his parents for the inheritance, but failed thanks to Dr. Wayne. So he blamed Thomas Wayne for saving his mother's life. Yeah. Then, instead of bumping off Mother later, you know, with any number of chemicals he'd have access to as a doctor, he lets her live long enough to die of cancer, and in the meantime becomes a world-renowned surgeon because he's bored? Studying to be a doctor is hard work. Why bother if you're going to kill off the parents anyway? I just want to know where the whole, I wanted my parents to die anyway came from. Did did Loeb realise this guy was a bad guy and so had to have a bad guy motivation. motivation? Yeah, I mean, it's implied Tommy is jealous that Bruce's parents died and left him the money, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. But Tommy did this before that happened. Mm. So it's not like he, he looked at Bruce Wayne and thought, oh, you jammy bastard, <laughs> you're all dead rich now, aren't you? I will kill my parents. So that doesn't work. But the big thing for me, when does Tommy find out Batman is is Bruce Wayne? When does that happen? That's pivotal to this whole plot, him knowing that Batman is Bruce Wayne, and it's not mentioned anywhere. Does Riddler not tell him? How did the Riddler find out? (laughs) So, did the Riddler go to Tommy Elliot when he discovered that he had cancer? Because it was a brain tumour, wasn't it? Rather than cancer specifically. Yeah. So presumably he went to Tommy Elliot to get it removed. Was that when he went good? I've no idea. No, that was late. That was in the Paul Dini thing, wasn't it? Wasn't was that it? the Paul Dini run? I don't know. Yeah, he becomes a detective, doesn't he? Yeah. Something like that. So he went to Tommy Elliot, of all the people he could have gone to. Yeah. He goes to Tommy Elliot. He shares with him the secret of the Lazarus pit. Tommy Elliot's got a mad on for Bruce Wayne already. Mm. So there it's implied that Tommy knew Bruce Wayne was Batman. How did he find that out? Does it imply that, or does it just imply that he didn't like Bruce anyway? Why does he have a mad off for Bruce Wayne, though? Bruce didn't do anything. Bruce didn't kill his dad. He killed his dad. Well, Bruce didn't no, save his mum. Bruce Thomas did. promised... But that's not his the... motivation, though, is it? We are, we are given that as a possible motivation, yeah. that Bruce promises that Dr. Wayne will save his life and doesn't, but that's never mentioned again. That's a red herring. Right. So why is Tommy Elliot mad at Bruce? What has Bruce done that Tommy's mad at? Bruce didn't do anything. Maybe Tommy's just a little bit messed up in the head. Well, yeah, that goes without saying. He's gone through all this elaborate scheme to make himself rich when he's already (laughs) rich. Yeah. It doesn't add up in any way. But look, Jim Lee artwork. (laughs) Look, the soles of the Riddler's boots. (laughs) Not as nice as Batman's. Not as nice as Batman's, no. It doesn't... There is no way you can make this make any sense. Unless I'm missing something really fundamental in this whole thing. And let's be honest, these last couple of pages are just a huge info dump. Yeah. So it's possible I've missed... And I read it four times. 
so I don't think I have. But we never find out, A, when he finds out that Bruce is Batman, or B, why he's even mad at Bruce Wayne in the first place. Yeah. We never find that out. Or was that not in one of the sequels? I don't know, I've never read Heart of Hush. Yeah. Or the one that was in House of Hush. I've never read them. But I shouldn't have to read a sequel for this story to make sense. Yeah. A different creative team shouldn't have to come in and go, you know that story Jeff Lorber wrote? It didn't make any sense. Let's fix it. Zero hour. Yeah, Zero Hour did it. Uh, I did like the Harvey Dent backfire. I did like that when Tommy fixed him, he reversed to being Harvey. Yeah. He reverted to being Harvey, sorry, not reversed, rather than Two-Face. But also, crucially, we never actually see that Hush is Tommy Elliot. No. We never see that. That's why Bruce goes after him, isn't it? We're told it's Tommy. He identifies himself as Tommy, but we never see that it's Tommy Elliot. What if it actually was the Riddler? Well, and will we also never see a body? Yeah. So for well, me... For the sequels? Yeah, well, this could be another big red hell in him. It may not be... Tom- Tommy Elliot may have been dead years ago. Clayface has been pretending to be Tommy Elliot for years. Clay- there's Clayface in this issue. Yeah. <laughs> Clayface has studied to be a surgeon because he would go to all that trouble. He is a method actor. He is a method... He is, yeah, because he was... A- yeah, yeah, exactly right. So... No... <laughs> That's actually a better, better <laughs> It's more plausible that Clayface has studied to be a master yeah. surgeon than this plot. And that's why there's no body in the river, because the clay <laughs> is all... Clayface. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the scene with Batman and Superman was nice. Batman beating himself up over Jason is, is a worthy piece of angst. You know, Batman wouldn't get over that. Yeah. So I get that that is something that still hangs over his head. And like we said, the huge info dump is, is too much. I like how it, it kind of sets up the return of Jason Todd in the Lazarus Pit. Yes, it sets... But they didn't do that in the comics, because I've never read Return of the Red Hood. Yeah. So I don't know what they did in the comic. I've seen the film where they used the Lazarus Pit. That's based on the comics, isn't it? No, in the comics, isn't it? No, in the comics, it's Superboy punching reality that brings Jason Todd back. But they fix it so that it's the Lazarus. Do they? Yeah. I don't know because I've never read that. No. I do mean to. Uh, yeah, I remember but I've never being around to it. So when Superman or Superboy punches the reality in Infinite Crisis and messes things up, brings back people from the dead. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think either after that, when the whole multiverse kind of collapses, yeah. They do go back to being well. It was the Lazarus Pit. The Lazarus Pit makes more sense. The, yeah. the Under the Red Hood film is actually really good. I'll have to read it, but just like you, I can't bring myself to read anything. Judd Winnick story, Winnick, yeah. but the, the film's really good. Yeah. So that's made me interested in the comic, but people say that the comic is different from the film. So right. I don't know. I would have to check it out. Uh, this info dump really should have been explained in the actual story somewhere along the line, but he was too busy giving Jim Lee pretty things to draw. So. I did find it odd at the end of this story by two guest creators who kicked off the regular and better creative team that the Riddler, Catwoman and Two-Face are changed irrevocably. Or as yeah. irrevocably is allowed for a, a continuous comic book strip. The Riddler and Catwoman know he's Bruce Wayne and Two-Face is cured. Was this uh, ever addressed yeah. in our IP or anything that followed? No, the Two-Face thing, I remember the... When, he, well, he went back to being Two-Face in the yeah, one year later. Yeah, there's face-to-face, he's yeah. Two-Face again, but I don't remember if they particularly acknowledge Hush. I don't remember, because I've not read Face-to-Face but, since it came out. Yeah, and as for the Catwoman thing, isn't it in Heart of the Hush where 
She gets her heart ripped out or something. I've never read Heart of Hush. So I don't know. I don't have it all. I think I'm still missing an issue. I think I'm still missing the last issue of that Gotham... What was it called? Streets of Gotham. Yeah. I'm still missing the last issue of Streets of Gotham. Um, This has got to be one of the most convoluted endings to a story I have ever read. (laughs) Even when John Byrne used to do his info dumps at the end of the Superman stuff, like they used to point out on From Crisis to Crisis, it was only one page. Yeah. This was three pages of info dump that ultimately doesn't make any sense if you sit and think about it for more than two minutes. Even just then when we were running through it, other things came to us that I hadn't written in my notes that were like, well, wait a minute, what about that? And what about this? And we don't find anything important. And we don't even understand Tommy's motivations. He had a crap ton of money already. (laughs) Why do this to get I didn't to get rich when you're rich? You never have enough money. Oh really? Yeah. And Bruce Wayne of all people should know that. That is a line in the story. So, yeah. So that's could be considered a clue, I suppose. Alright, I mean I get what Loeb was going for here, but did Gotham City Police Department never investigate the car? That the brakes had been cut. Yeah. GCPD didn't do that, did they? Are you even an insurance investigator? Surely an insurance claim investigator would have had that. Yeah. And they would have found that the brakes were cut. But, you know, Loeb's going for a whole player on the other side vibe that Tommy wanted to kill his parents while Bruce would do anything to have his parents back, which is okay, but this is quite a lame ending. And I've got to confess, the story squandered my faith a great deal when Tommy explained his motivations that I had to force myself to finish reading it. And this sour taste made me almost miss the decent character moments and genuinely good parts of this last issue. Does Superman and Batman bits are nicely characterised? Catwoman tells Huntress, whatever you do, make sure you do it for yourself, which is a, a nice little bit of empowerment. All you recall, though, when you shut the issue, is that the actual mystery is a bit lame. You, you know, The ending being satisfying is what you remember when you close a book or leave the cinema or leave the theatre or whatever. And this was just a bait and switch. It's like... Loeb knew Tommy was the only suspect. Mm. So to throw readers off the scent, he kills Tommy. But in doing that, he further exposes the flaws in the story that there are no other suspects. Other. Yeah. Be honest, there was, no, there was never any doubt from beginning to end that Tommy Elliott was something to do with this. Because mm. he was the only person, unless he was really going to throw you a curveball and it'd be Leslie Tompkins. <laughs> That may have worked in some way. I don't know how, but, you know, everything was red herrings. There were clues that it was Jason, but, you know, as we pointed out, this story doesn't work for non-Batman readers. They'd be sat there wondering who the hell Jason Todd is. Because even to non-comics readers, Dick Grayson is Robin. Yeah. Possibly... Tim Drake because of the animated series so they may yep. possibly know that there was another Robin named Tim Drake but they've no, they've no idea who Jason Todd especially is especially since he's dead before and after the story yeah so none of that made any sense to me only comics readers know or care about Jason yeah and only comics readers of a certain vintage know about Harold you could probably have picked up a Batman comic from what 2000 onwards and never know who Harold is yeah and so it's it was it was just I expect better from Jeff Loeb because there was no clues set up for to Harold being involved with this at all anywhere yeah before he just shows up and you're like what 
that's like doing a Columbo mystery and him pursuing the guy throughout the entire thing and then in the last reel a new guy walks in and goes oh no actually it was me <laughs> and you yeah. go huh it made no sense so what did you think I right, once again <laughs> I, I like a story we record it and you bloody go and ruin it I've you? not ruined it for <laughs> you the art which is Don't what you like about flaws, this man. <laughs> is still good yeah if you're into Jim Lee hmm. but it yeah, you can't read that last issue in any way make it make sense I was young when I read it I must have you know no I, I, there is no way this deserves to be on the best Batman stories ever told it had a really strong start yes my problem with it and then it falls to bits rapidly yeah. individual issues are good the, the, the Harley Quinn issue is fantastically fun yeah and various other bits of it, but as a, an overall story arc, this is not worthy of being the best Batman. It's only there because of Jim Lee. True. The only reason this story gets picked as the best Batman story ever told. So in that case, it should be picked as the best Batman art ever done. There are people who will buy an expensive hardback, which is just his pencils. Yeah, you. Yeah. And there's there's a reason Superman for Tomorrow keeps being reprinted, and it ain't because it's any good. <laughs> yeah. I, what I like about that last issue, though, is the Batman and Catwoman's kind of split up because you can't trust her. Yeah. It's, not, it's never put her, like, spelled out for you or told that if she had a part of the mystery. You never, like, find that out. It's never answered. She says hush and Batman panics and pushes her away. But was she saying hush? Was she a part of it? Or? See, I got that she wasn't. I got that she was manipulated by Poison Ivy. Yeah. She I, genuinely wasn't a part of it. I got that, but... It never tells you. No, it never answers the... Th- so, whether Batman is being unjustifiably paranoid... Yeah. ...or justifiably paranoid is never explained. Mm. So that's ambiguous. All right, fair enough. So, Hush was a big deal, but was it any good? Not really. It's pretty to look at and got a lot of publicity because it was Jim Lee drawing Batman after being an image and Marvel creator. But it's not a particularly engaging story and, as we pointed out, it really doesn't deserve its one of the best Batman stories ever told tag. Hmm. Do you think it deserves to be on those lists? Not anymore. No, I don't think it does. You know, we're sitting here saying this, this was a pretty crap story but had a big name working on a different company on a big character yeah I think we're going to be saying the same thing about John Romita on Superman in a few months time possibly yeah very possibly but because that's essentially the Superman equivalent to this isn't it yeah Jeff Johns and John Romita doing Superman yeah I suppose is the equivalent of Jim Lee and Jeff Loeb on Batman yeah hopefully that won't but we've had that with Superman Scott Snyder and Jim Lee Superman Unchained that was a damp squib and all wasn't it no the thing with that was Jim Lee was already working for DC right I get get the parallel that you're going for yeah yeah. John Romita Jr. is a Marvel creator he's now coming on Superman Jim Lee was primarily known for being Image in Marvel right I see the parallel yeah okay fair enough next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics Forever Evil yeah. Michael's getting to do this one because I'm having a week off, obviously, because we're, <laughs> we're going away. It's why yeah. this episode's been recorded two days after the last one. So that's your baby. A lot of work to do on exam season. Yes. Well, you know, you can do it in your spare time. Just don't go out. Okay. Next yeah. week. Stay in the house. Right, Be a okay. recluse. All right. I'll, I'll bring the party over, mate. <laughs> yes. Yes. Don't even think about it. See you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. Hey, kids, come in.
Remix is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show has not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs>